Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and as always, I will be your host today. And I want to take a look back today. Today is a fantastic episode with a real visionary uh, leader who changed a lot about how we think about the world today. You know, there's some pivotal companies that define the change in the way people act and make decisions. Companies without whom entire industries might not exist and entire behaviors would not be the same. Uh, if you want to look at a technology, you know, people never really even talked about the cloud until Salesforce, one of the first businesses that proved the cloud really means the death of software, came around. Salesforce invented the cloud in some ways. We can look at Uber that made us realize that on-demand everything is possible and even better than the status quo because before Uber, there was no DoorDash. Before Uber, there was no on-demand taxi for your kids. There was hardly, there was no on-demand mechanics. Uber invented the delivery of everything. And one of the most pivotal moments of the last two decades has been crowdfunding. This has been a movement that today brings in over $10 billion dollars crowdfunding every single year, but that market didn't even exist before a little startup helped creatives raise money for their projects. And that company, of course, is Kickstarter. Now, uh, you know, when I say that Salesforce invented the cloud or Uber invented delivery, of course, there are lots of companies and lots of movements and lots of luck involved in this. But what you'll find in this conversation that I have with Yancey Strickler, who is one of Kickstarter's founders and early CEOs, is what Kickstarter meant to crowdfunding and even interesting stories about how they tried to avoid the word crowdfunding tied to their name. Yancey and I uh, get into what the mindset of Kickstarter was in the early days, how they acquired their first projects, why they started as invite-only, and much more. And you see that, of course, while other companies came on pretty quickly, but companies like Patreon and GoFundMe were really riding the coattails of what Kickstarter started. And so when you think about what your company is starting, when you think about the kind of movement that your company is trying to build in an industry, in a consumer behavior, in a way of doing things, there's a lot we can learn from what Yancey speaks about, about Kickstarter and what they did. There's a lot of decisions that they made that are very purposeful who to focus on, how niche to be, where to acquire their users, what kind of branding to put around their business, what kind of mission to put around their business. And these are things that I predict other companies that had massive influence on an industry also did. You know, Apple invented uh, designer computers, and they stuck to their brand of being high-end all the way through every single product they ever had. Microsoft basically invented software. And they stuck to their brand even today as a software company above all else. And they made decisions around being that kind of company. And Kickstarter pretty much invented crowdfunding. And it is such an honor to speak with somebody who had had such a pivotal role about how people think about financing projects, about how people think about being an independent creative, and that entire industry that they launched. Yancey is also the author of a recent book, This Could Be Our Future, which is one of my favorite books I read last year. And we talk about how his model that he calls Bentoism, 
which is really about approaching decisions with care and compassion for others and for our own future, how that model can apply to startups and to sales. So I really recommend his book, This Could Be Our Future. We talk a lot about that. And you'll see that his philosophies that he only put into writing in book form a year or so ago actually exist all the way through his entire career at Kickstarter and beyond. So without further ado, I hope the hype is not too much because I really enjoyed my conversation uh, and learned a ton from Yancey. Please enjoy my conversation with Yancey Strickler. Yancey Strickler, welcome to the gong. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is so, so cool. This is, this is the Yancey from the Kickstarter. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, I, this, is, this is awesome. Kickstarter is uh, a company that really grew, I think, as I and many people my age began to look at um, tech and cool platforms. I mean, I remember when I was in entrepreneurship classes uh, at co- in college, we talked a ton about Kickstarter because you were in that growth phase. You were um, acquiring new projects. You were doing creative things. So believe it or not, um, Kickstarter was one of the companies that was fairly instrumental to how a lot of people um, my age think about tech, about entrepreneurship, about fundraising, about all those kinds of things. Um, So it's a a privilege to be able to speak with you. I wanted to start and, and get straight into it and just learn about um, maybe the founding story a bit of how Kickstarter came to be in those first few years. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, well, it was uh, Perry Chen who first had the idea um, for Kickstarter. And Perry um, Perry was living in New Orleans in like 2001, 2002, and he wanted to throw a concert. And, um, and it was going to have to front like 20 grand or something to make it happen and decided not to do it but it had this flash of what if he could have proposed the idea for the concert online and people could put up their credit cards to buy tickets except no one would be charged unless the show sold out and that way he wouldn't be stuck making this decision on behalf of everybody everyone together could make that decision um but you know 2001 internet was a very very different era like you you know you needed to have a closet full of servers and like a smelly dude standing outside. You know, it was just like a very, a very different kind of world. Um, and at the time, Perry was like an artist, recording engineer, you know, creative background. And a few years later, he and I met in New York. At the time, I was a music critic, a music journalist, and um, we met at a place in in Brooklyn and got to be friends. And um, soon, he shared his idea with me. Uh, I think because. You know, at the time, my day job was at a company with had .com and that had a .com in its name. So like that, you know, that made that made someone technical in 2005. Um, but we just started this project, this idea of uh, a platform, a place where people could propose ideas and the public would support them. Um, you know, we were just really driven by, and especially coming at, at it from our from our creative backgrounds. You know just really thinking about it like an artist, you know, just looking at all the bands that I was friends with and just knowing that the challenge of putting a project out was enormous, that you're trying to pitch a 
uh, a room full of execs who are looking for a hit. You know, you're contorting your ideas to try to meet what you think their expectations are so you can get the green light, you can get the check. And just how limited those systems were and like what a bottleneck it was to get through them. And so for us, the idea of just opening that up and allowing people to tell their own story and allowing people to connect to other people um, was just, you know, just something that we believed in that made sense to us, but also was like, really felt like a pipe dream to a lot of people we, we spoke with, right? It wasn't, it seems obvious now, it felt non-obvious then. Um, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to convince everyone that, that this idea made sense. Yeah, it reminds me, actually, I just finished the book, uh, That Will Never Work, which is by Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix. And in it, he tells this really interesting parable where currently, if you Google the founding of Netflix, what you'll probably find is something like Reed Hastings uh, had late fees of $40 on a uh, VHS tape of Apollo 13 to his blockbuster and thought there must be a better way. And what Mark Randolph tells is that is absolutely untrue. That is just a story that is simple to tell to an investor or to a journalist. And what really happened is Mark Randolph and Reed together had this vision of maybe the internet, you could sell something on there. You know, Amazon had some success on books. What else can we do? And they threw around ideas of doing baseball, personalized baseball bats. And, you know, eventually they landed on movies and they were selling DVDs and renting them at the same time. And it took many years and many iterations for them to take this very broad idea of we could sell something on the internet, who knows what or how, into we only rent DVDs on a subscription basis. It took years for them to get to that. And this feels like there's a a bit of a similarity there, which is you and Perry had an idea of wouldn't it be nice if, if creatives were not beholden to these traditional establishments, but I imagine it took years until you really found your path to say, hey, we're a crowdfunding site and it works like this and, and, it, and it works particularly well for this exact set of users. Is that, is that right? Well, I think that, um, you know, I think Perry's original idea was the broad, was the category. Here's just this model and here's this form. Um, I think what happened when he and myself and Charles Adler um, uh, is also founder, co-founder of Kickstarter. Um, you, you know, what, what we did is really, we did focus it on a space. We focused it on creative projects. Um, you know, we we saw that it could be used for charity. We saw that it could be used to start a business. You know, something like Kiva and microloans already existed. Um, and those were not areas that we had any passion for um, and weren't like our world. You know, our, our sweet spot was the creative world. And what we could see is that, um, you know, to make public fundraising something that's in any way palatable to a creative person, like you have to create a new culture around, a different culture on it than what currently existed. You know, at that point, like fundraising was defined by like television telethons and like commercials of starving children. You know, um, fundraising and giving was done primarily out of guilt. You know, it's an emotional choice, an emotional action. And, you know, we, we really felt like that, that can't be the culture, um, you know, for this to work, the culture has to be collaborative, it's creative, it's people coming together to make things, um, and having that kind of optimistic, uh, energy. And, um, and so to do that, 
you know, really like to, to appeal to the, the people that we thought were most critical to growing the platform, which is the creative community, artists and creative people. Um, you know, we thought we really had to make a place that was meant for them. And, uh, and you know, and, uh, this sounds like, like a third party uh, strategic analysis. I mean, these are all choices that felt natural to us that I think um, just reflected what was the need we saw and just sort of like what, what the problem was we kind of had the right to solve. I mean, not that, you know, not, not that we have, we could speak for artists by any stretch, but like we, we had a real sense of that, um, of that reality. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't speculative. And then, you know, what is true is that um, the more focused you are, the greater your, you know, I think, I think the better your chances um, because you, you just have the greater opportunity to have resonance with an audience. Um, but, you know, we also, it was, it was wide enough to, we have, there's lots of different kinds of creative people with lots of different motivations. So there's still some variety there. Um, and, you know, and the other interesting thing is that when we started the, the phrase crowdfunding didn't exist, um, that came into existence, you know, right around, maybe shortly before we launched or right around it. Uh, and it's funny cause that's a phrase we never really embraced because we thought, that term was all about the model. It was all about how the transaction occurred rather than what the transaction was producing. Like we thought of ourselves as a creative, a creativity platform uh, rather than a crowdfunding platform. We didn't want the mechanic to define it, but this is what happens in the beginning of these sorts of things. Like in the same way you're saying that, you know, Amazon was an e-tailer, like e-tailer used to be a category. Now, now that's just not even a category anymore. Um, because it's just so pervasive and there's, you know, there's so many small tributaries of it. Um, so we always saw ourselves as like, we want to be beyond the form. We just want to, you know, just be this kind of creative tool, creative community. So even within the word creative, you know, this is sometimes something you, you might hear a lot, which is, hey, we solve for, we're pretty niche, like we just help conservation or we're, we're pretty niche, like we're just a self-driving car company. We're pretty niche. But even within the word creative, I mean, there's a lot of different categories to go into. You could be specifically for musicians and concerts or musicians doing their own albums. You could be for artists trying to paint landscapes or for uh, people creating new fashion concepts. Even within the span creative, there's a lot to do there. So I don't know to the extent that you did purposefully say, hey, we're starting with music. Other people can come, like, but all of our focus is on musicians in the beginning or you didn't. But regardless, would love to know what you think were some of the advantages and disadvantages of going as as broader or as narrow as you did decide to go. Well, for me, you know, coming from the music world before being a music critic and, ha and running a record label, um, I, I didn't want to be too music oriented. You know, I looked at MySpace, which was the dominant social media platform at that time, and saw a platform that was too dominated by the music category, like the culture was too much determined by that. And so I saw the musicians as being the early adopters for any new tool. Um, and I kind of wanted to signal boost the other categories rather than have too much of them. because I felt like they had the ability to, um, to be very dominant, but, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because you're, for us, we were trying to introduce a model, you know, a, a new form like crowdfunding was something that had to be explained. You know, the first, first three years Kickstarter existed, virtually every single project video is someone trying to explain to their own audience how Kickstarter works, how crowdfunding works, because no one knew, 
you know, so there was the, like that massive. Yeah, there's no one else educating the market for you. You were the leader in that and you had to do the teaching. Yeah. And it was great. It was great because people are like, you know, being expressive and creative about how they tell the story. And, you know, I think it just, it helped it grow. It helped people learn the language of it. Um, and, you know, so there was like, it was a new form. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we did, I think that was important is because we thought about what the culture of the site would be like, um, we were very careful about, we were very considerate about what kind of projects we wanted to have on. And so we, we made it so that it was invite only to begin. Um, and about 50 of our artist friends had invites and each of them had five invites they could share with someone they knew. And, um, or you could write into us and, to get an invite uh, to start a project. And so right from the beginning, like the invitation to do a Kickstarter, access to doing a Kickstarter was, was like, was cool. There was some scarcity to it. You had to know somebody. And, and why um, did you decide to do that? Why did you limit yourselves in that way instead of saying, hey, I'm not sure who's going to come to us. Let's just open it up and find out. Because because cultures get set so early, and 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 if you're especially talking about the culture and the creative world, like culture is everything, vibe is everything. Um, you know, that's not something that you can just let the crowd decide. I think you know, if you have a vision of who you're trying to serve, I think you want to shape that a bit. So you know, it was just like if you just open the doors to anybody, you don't know who's going to show up. And yes, there's something exciting about that, but there's something dangerous about that. And um, and so for us, you know, we, you know, we were looking at like a, a long game of success, you know, it wasn't, it, it, you know, it wasn't like we were launching with a lot of fanfare um, and we're trying to make the case for the value of this model. And, you know, to us, and just, I think probably it's working backwards from how we feel persuaded by those things, but our instincts was it's about being validated within these communities, within the leading voices in each creative field. And you do that by, through slow growth, through limiting control, through, um, you know, trying to get to know the people in these worlds. Because th what's great is that then when someone wanted to launch a project, they would reach out, they would email, and they, they almost always talk to me. And so then you just get a, you get a stronger sense of what's happening. And you build your network and then, you know, especially at the early stage of something where you're trying to build trust and establish yourself. Um, all of those, all of those gestures go so far. And, you know, that was like 13, 14 years ago. And, you know, the conversations I had with people back then are, are, you know, still, still meaningful to me and we're, and, you know, are just very exciting to think about. Um, yeah. Just how they helped how they help the platform grow and, and really be, be valid, be socially validated. It seems like in 2009, when you guys really more publicly launched and really got going, uh, there was some rapid growth. I mean, I read, I think within the first year you had well over a thousand funded projects, even though if I know it right, the very first project ever of which you were the very, very first funder with five bucks actually failed. What was that first year of, of true public growth like did you think it was a success or were you guys internally nervous that you weren't growing fast enough or weren't growing with the right users because you had just raised a round of about 10 million dollars from pretty pretty big time legit vcs and investors i think union square and jack dorsey and folks like that so how did you guys as a leadership team feel about your success or lack thereof within the first year um well um you know, when we, when we first launched, I still had a day job. 
Um, and uh, were you still writing? Were you still a music writer? Yeah, I was a music writer, and so it was like, and I was doing like customer service on nights and weekends. They say and, you should never your your full time job shouldn't be founder for quite some time. He should yeah. always do it on someone else's dime for a little bit. Yeah, so I think I was like two months in when I quit um, and went full time, and you know I didn't feel like it was growing like crazy or anything, um, but just like every every time someone used it, every time someone had success, it was just very validating, and there was just a real excitement of, of like projects were learning from each other how to succeed right we had introduced this form and then it's the creators themselves who brought that form to life like there was a creator early on Allison Weiss who did a project to make an album and really it's like everything that happened in her project is the template of everything that's happened since like her video became like the trope for all Kickstarter videos she offered rewards that are that she made up like these personalized things that are still the kinds of things that people offer she did like stretch goals all this stuff like and all those things were community developed and people sort of learning from each other what works and so that community started to come together and um and that was just awesome just watching it happen um and yeah it was like it was during that time that we that we raised our only um real venture round and it was less than a million dollars it wasn't 10 million dollars it was le less than a million dollars that we raised um in that first year and um i mean that was that was exciting you know chiefly in that the the main investor was um union square ventures and a uh, a man named fred wilson who we really had admired uh, you know through the internet for a long time and had gotten to know and really respected and felt a real connection with and he's he's someone I'm I'm still close with today, and uh, and he's he's great, and um, and there were yeah a lot of other people that suddenly got involved, and so there's this moment where the idea was really validated, um, and you know like Perry first had the idea in 2001, so for him that's like eight years waiting for that moment. Um, you know I got involved about four years before Charles, about three years before. Um, and you know, but it, it was just about—I don't know. It's just—it's just—it—it—it it, it was just manifesting itself. It just somehow just all felt like a natural, organic flow of events. Okay. And um, and this, you know, this, this is the time when the team's starting to get built. Um, and you know, it's 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 such a wonderful time in any in any company's life. It's really it's like um, I remember reading a. A quote once from Kurt Cobain um, talking about how his favorite period in Nirvana was like touring with the band right before they got big, like the six weeks before they got big when they're playing shows and they can feel something's happening, but it hasn't happened yet. And like if he could just stay in that place forever, like that's what he would choose to do. And like I, you know, I, I know what he means by that. There is just like this beautiful simplicity to like those moments when something's clicking for the first time um that's yeah that's it's it, it can feel magical uh i was actually talking to the C former ceo of another marketplace company on this podcast the other day gary swart who's a ceo of upwork and he talked about how with upwork what really really worked for them well was not focusing on both sides of the marketplace at the same time but saying, hey, which is the one that we need to bring first to make the other one very happy? And for them, it was decided if you have the jobs, 
if you have businesses who are posting jobs on their platform, then you'll find engineers, you'll find uh, people who are looking to apply for those jobs. So that's what they did. They focused on small businesses, looking for JavaScript developers. They flooded their site with all these potential job offers. And then bit by bit, JavaScript developers who were their first buy side of the marketplace uh, really grew in. Did you guys make a decision like that and say, hey, like the most important thing for us is to have a few projects, but funded by a lot of really awesome people or maybe the other side of it, which we want a lot of projects, a lot of choice so that when people come to look for fun something, um, they do it bit by bit. Or how did you guys think about growing a marketplace uh, like that? Uh, we always thought that the creator was our customer and that the backer was the creator's customer. And, and, and our job was to serve that artist and to put them in a position to succeed, to give them the tools to do what they needed to do. But ultimately, they would best know how to serve their audience. And someone coming to back them on Kickstarter, like that backer, at the beginning, our thinking was that backer isn't really ours. It's the creators. And they're just they're just like choosing to meet in our house, basically. Um, and like that, our rights to that relationship are limited. Um, was the mindset because again we thought that's that's what would that's what was in the creator's best interest, and the creator was who our customer was, and, and that I mean that's I, I think that's probably still fair to say is is an inclination that drives the company. Um, but what happened over time was that, you know, we might have felt that way, but enough backers had supported enough projects or developed a relationship with Kickstarter that they. They felt that relationship, even if we weren't focusing on it, even if we weren't prioritizing it. Um, and so then, and then over time, you like start start to build that side out and try to, you know, address those needs. But yeah, I, I agree. It's hard to do both at the same time. Um, and and ultimately, you know, ultimately one is going to be more is is most likely going to be more important than the other. When it comes to growing a, a marketplace, specifically a marketplace business, what are some of the mistakes, and I'll give you kind of two options to go here, but what are some of the mistakes you think you might have made looking back and saying, oh, well, there's a missed opportunity, or we executed on this incorrectly, or our philosophy led us astray here, specific to your experience with Kickstarter, or maybe if you'd like more broadly, you know, you now advise lots of companies. I actually saw one of them the other day, Project Ren, which is not a marketplace, but I liked it so much that I... Uh, now offset my carbon through it. So thank you for writing about that and thank, thank yeah. them for doing that thing. Um, but what, what mistakes do you think uh, either you guys made in the past or marketplace companies today uh, make in growing their businesses? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if I could say mistake, but I can say what's hard. I mean, I think what's hard is, um, is like moderation and governance. Um, that's something that, we always put a lot of attention on, but it's like very emotionally challenging work. What does um, that mean? Moderation and governance? Moderation governance, like policing and defining what can happen in your marketplace and having real rules. I mean, at, at the beginning, like that stuff is fairly easy. And then the longer you go, the more, you know, um, less benevolent players will find edge cases to try to exploit your system and you put yourself in a position of you know either kind of letting go of control and allowing your marketplace to become a bit more of a wild west or exerting control and doing the hard work of like moderating and governing um your platform and 
What's hard about that work is it leads to a lot of like arguments with malicious users who are just basically trying to troll you. And, and, you know, and it can just, it doesn't feel rewarding, right? Like every day it's like the world is trying to wear you down and, and like make you give up on this work because it just feels so thankless. But like to make a good marketplace, to make a good community, that's the work that has to happen. Um, and so I think that's critical in that. And you see a lot of tension with that when it comes to growth, right? Like um, if, you're, if you're a platform that's looking to grow the number of listings, then like quality and moderation are not things that you pay attention to because those get in the way of that goal. But over time, that will decrease the trust in your platform. And like trust is one of those things that you have to like really closely monitor. So, you know, I think it's, there's just like that maintenance and upkeep and kind of diligence that I think is so critical um, with, yeah, with any kind of like user generated platform um, that it's work that doesn't feel, yeah, that feels thankless in the moment, but without it, you know, these places degenerate quickly. Yeah, that's right. And you even see companies that are much more mature uh, putting in those guardrails and spending a lot of money on that, maybe learning the lesson of some of the larger companies. You might take an Uber, who's not the same at all, but they had this marketplace and their focus was growth and they grew faster than they could possibly put those guardrails on. Whereas right now you see a company like Airbnb preparing to go public, which is very much this marketplace business, very much reliant on users on either end. And they are investing so heavily that they, I think, made a profit a year ago. And now they're in the red again because they're putting as many resources as they can into putting these guardrails up. So I imagine when you're actually in the moment, you know, it's easy to be the armchair philosopher and criticize, but it's easy in the moment to uh, have this challenge between, all right, should we grow, grow, grow? Because those are the expectations on us. Or should we moderate, uh, be disciplined about it? Uh, and probably grow a little bit slower uh, at the risk of of not making it as far as other stakeholders might have uh, might have expectations for. You guys might have had a little advantage there, not having too many venture capitalists and other outside financial stakeholders pushing you for fast growth. Would that be yeah. I mean that was in, that was intentional. Um, you know, we fool we fool ourselves by trying to separate these conversations, right? By thinking like the need for growth and sort of like these moderation challenges are, are different conversations, but you're right. They are, they are the same one. Um, and you know, what Airbnb has right is they can see that in their category for their type of activity, it is trust that will matter the most over the long term, And, um, and so that's leading them to make harder choices to grow in different kinds of ways, but they're going to see the benefit of that. And, you know, and I think that's, that's a sign of where things are going. Um, that's a sign of like, you know, the, the, the maturation of internet businesses. Um, you know, that also means probably uh, some decrease in the profit margins of some categories, categories of internet businesses. Um, but like this is, you know, the internet doesn't let us just skip over all the hard things of human nature. Like sooner or later, they come right back up again. Um, and so you know, it's just, you just have to face it and, and acknowledge it. And so that's, I think that's, you know, the last 10 years, that kind of stuff was like the the boring part of class that everyone just wanted to fast forward through so they could get back to like the fun part where everyone's crushing it again. Um, but I think we're reaching a stage of tech where there is, these platforms are maturing. Um, you know, all these companies are hitting a kind of like late adolescence or even early middle age 
and you know just just like the yeah the 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 way the ways the wind and the culture are going to change are, are going to be more in this direction of responsibility yeah, i like yes. that sentence I like that sentence of uh, the internet doesn't let us skip over the hard parts of human nature. Yeah. That's pressure. And I, I actually, I think that's a really nice transition point to what I want to learn a little more about, which is you and I met through the context of the book you recently wrote, um, which is partially related to, to what we've been talking about here. Can you, can you tell us a little about this could be our future and, and what, you, uh, what you're trying to share with Betoism? Yeah, so I, I wrote a book that came out last year um, called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. And um, it's a book that really, uh, it explores like the topic of how, how our values are optimized, basically. Um, you know, the, the first half of the book explores how the world came to be uh, driven by a belief that the right choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. Like that just became the shorthand for whatever the right option was. And I show that this belief that I, I call financial maximization, the belief that always the financial outcome is the right one, is way more recent than we believe. Like that idea is about 50 years old. Um, we can see how it's changed the way the world has worked. And, and that is not something that um, will always be the guiding force of society. And I use Kickstarter um, as one example um, of showing how, um, you know, showing how seeing beyond just profit motives reveals new ways to compete and new ways to, to create value. Like Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation that um, both has to maximize its shareholder value as well as produce a positive public benefit to society. And just like Airbnb, like this is where things are going. Um, so the way I illustrate this and sort of what it, what this kind of new world we're moving towards looks like uh, is through something I call bentoism, based on a bento box. But it's a very simple two by two quadrant, and it's a map of self interest. And the idea is that we tend to see our self interest according to now me, what I want and need right now. You can think of this as the bottom left of this two by two. But there's also in the bottom right corner, there's also future me, this older, thinking about the older, wiser version of yourself, the, the person who lived the obituary you wish you could have, the one that made all the right choices and lived up to all their commitments. In the top left, there's now us, the people you rely on and who rely on you, your family, your friends, your coworkers. And the top right is future us, your children and everybody else's kids. And the idea is that Every choice we make leaves a footprint in all these spaces. Our future me becomes real or not real every day according to the choices we make. Our, our now us, our future us are all impacted by the things that we do, and yet we're functionally blind to the impact uh, of our choices. And we're also functionally blind to the, to the values and ways of valuing uh, that we should be thinking about for those spaces. So like one of the reasons why we struggle with climate change uh, is that we keep looking for solutions that improve our now me self-interest, things that make life better right now. But that's the issue with climate change. We're like burning up the, the possibilities of the future to have that now me right now. And so, um, so the, you know, the bento box is like a, you could think of it as a mental model, uh, a kind of map um, to thinking about really where all you operate and, uh, and to create an idea that, um, you know, I, I keep referring to it as self-coherence, but this notion of knowing what it is to be in integrity with yourself. And I think for, for organizations or for people, like when, we're, when we have our flow states, when we're our most effective, when we are 
sort of in the zone. Um, to me, it's when we are acting in a way that's coherent, that we're living up to our values. And to me, the, the bento and this way of thinking is a more realistic picture of what that is. You know, we're, we live in a very individualized, very short-term oriented society um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and there's a limitation to that. And so my belief is that um, this transition is this transition of how we see value and the transition of how we see our self-interest are going to be the defining the defining trends of the next 30 years like i think that's that's ultimately the path that we're on um and so you know in the book i'm trying to explore what that looks like um you know an interesting example i give of like a real world use case of this kind of thing is talking about how adele the pop singer adele uh, distributes concert tickets so normally when adele goes on tour her tickets immediately sell out um, and then they go on secondary mark secondary ticketing websites for hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Um, and rather than go along with this, Adele found a startup that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her as an artist and that would distribute her tickets to the most loyal fans instead. And uh, these shows still like operate in the black. It was still like a profitable tour. She had to, people had to pay tickets for the shows. But the idea was that by optimizing for sort of like this now us value of loyalty and fairness, that it would create a different kind of experience. Like Adele's now me needs to like run a tour where she's not losing money. We're still satisfied. But really like what was special and interesting in the, the, the energy investment of the tour was around the sort of now us value instead. And so for Adele, that creates loyalty, more goodwill. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that it's in her self-interest. And I think that it's choices like that that are going to be increasingly what distinguishes, you know, the leaders, the leaders in every category. It's it's going to be the bar that customers and employees hold people to. And, and you know, and I, I think that's going to be the story uh, of the coming decades. And uh, yeah, it's it's, I think it's an exciting moment. Now, let me let me try to take that and apply it to sales because when I think about that, in some respects, sales is very often, uh, at least traditionally stereotyped as a now me practice. It's mm. how can I hit my quota? How can I trick this person to get in the sale? You know, and that's a totally unfair comparison. But the used car salesman being the the most uh, the most common theme here, which is very much selfish. Greed is good. It's selfish. Uh, it's sales is a selfish now me philosophy. But when I think about what it takes to do sales for a startup, you know, and all you're doing is selling the dream, it feels like the role you need to take is very much more of a future us landscape. What can you, Mr. Mrs. Prospect and I, my company do together versus what can you do for me? Or even what can I do for you in this particular moment right. in time it's about looking forward there i i think it's i think it's um i think it's two things one is if you're trying to think about how to persuade someone um i think this gives you a lens of how to see it from their perspective so like you're just trying to think what what need are they trying to satisfy through this and you know is that about is that about like their individual desire to do well in their job is that about getting a win for their team is that about this being the long-term interest of their company is that about us being like a dream partner for them to work with, like an ideal, um, you know, ideal brand to associate themselves with? So you're sort of like trying to understand what's motivating that person and sort of playing to that. 
Um, but for a company to know, you know, for, yes, a company's, every company's now me is basically the same, which is like to grow, to survive, to be profitable, you know, to just, to still be able to exist tomorrow. Um, every, every company's future us is whatever its vision or mission is, um, which in reality is just like a world where their product is more central than it is today. <laughs> like every, every company's future us is ultimately self-interested. Um, and so what distinguishes companies Arts now us and its future me. So a company's now us. That's its value proposition. That's that's what it's pledging that it will do for customers, for its employees, for its suppliers, whoever. Like this is our promise to you. We are this kind of you know provider. And then the company's future me. That's its brand promise. That's its idealized self, like that version of you that you're always trying to live up to. And so what distinguishes companies that succeed is their ability to simultaneously fulfill that expectation, that value proposition, while also fulfilling the expectation of that idealized self. And so if you imagine someone like Apple, like Apple's future me, what's its brand about? It's think different. It's like being unique. And what's its now us? Well, Apple's like a walled garden. It's about privacy, like just works kind of technology. And so any product that Apple releases should always satisfy both of those poles. It should like exhibit the qualities of think different, whatever that means in that moment of time, as well as like upholding what developers, customers, and everyone else expects of them. And every time that they release a product that fulfills those things, we can think of that product as being self-coherent. It's, it's, it's true to who they are and thus is more likely, I think, to find success. Um, and so that self-coherence can happen within an organization. Uh, or I think it can happen by like how you connect with someone else and, and say understanding where, where they're coming from, working backwards from their motivations. Like, yes, if you're doing sales, your your motivation is to make a sale, but you also know that only going in with that as your mindset isn't going to get you very far. Like you have to make the sale. You have to think in terms of like the prospect, right? And so it's just a way to help you get a sense of where they're coming from. And, and I, I think that allows you to, to have a better chance of like of having a real conversation, say, rather than talking past each other. Now, when we think about future us, that's something that's so much bigger than uh, profits and losses. Like future us is bigger than a balance sheet. And for the predominance of American capitalism, the balance sheet has been the end all be all of what shareholders expect and please are told to focus on things like that. Now, it seems like in the last 20 years or so, um, there's been bit of a shift led by some companies, you know, uh, Salesforce doing so much for the community, never thinking about profits, um, uh, and many other companies like that. There's been a big shift into doing things without a very direct impact on the bottom line, at least tangibly. The B Corp being an enormous example of companies as big as Kickstarter and Etsy and Patagonia making decisions that are if at all related to profits, uh, definitely that path is not very clear, but it's so integral to who they are. So I'm wondering, you know, as you speak about this, you, you've been on a bit of a speaking tour, talking to massive companies about this and boardrooms and things like that. I'm trying to come at this from the perspective of, hey, I'm selling something for a startup. In my particular case, it's self-driving delivery cars and someone else's, it might be software for automated checkout. Someone else might be doing you know, accounting software for Fortune 500s or whatever it is. And I'm a little startup. Are you, are you saying that if I have and can connect to some sort of um, ulterior motive you know, in a positive way that these large companies and executives that these companies are looking to make 
investments into products and into suppliers that will matter from a, a perspective beyond purely getting further and further into the black. Like a company like Apple, the most profitable company in the world, or you know, a, a Microsoft or just any company that you're speaking to now, are there are there tools that I can use as a seller to them that um, that go beyond just, hey, here's how we're going to bring you an extra 15% profits in this particular category. I mean, I think that there's, I think that there's going to, that there's a lane that's available and becoming more available, which will be to be the mindful, environmentally sustainable, sustainable, whatever, whatever that set of behaviors is to be that player in the category. I mean, I think, I think that's going to be a lane that's going to open up um, because from the top down, companies are going to get the message that they have to be serious about um, reducing emissions like that. That's going to happen. And, you know, the way I see that playing out is that there's, it's, it's starting now and it's mostly PR at the moment, but it will get more real, but there's kind of a race to the top uh, of companies looking to basically self-tax their actions around the climate since, since states are not taking that action on their own. And because these companies don't want states to eventually take that action. So it's sort of like a preventative, um, preventative step. But I think something like that will drive behavior and will make that uh, more and more of a priority. And like to, to keep up with the Joneses, this is what you're going to have to do if your category moves in that direction. Um, so I think that there's, there's a cynical way of looking at that, which I think is probably fair. Um, but there's another way of looking at that that says, well, you know, change happens, however it happens, what's in, which is simply what's important is that like, we're, you know, we're trying to maintain the stability of our ecosystem, you know, but I, I think that that, I think that will be a new vector on which people can compete. Um, and, and I think that we're going to see more of those, that you're going to see the the privacy, you know, the, the, the play that's focusing on the, the privacy values of a product versus its competitors, like that might be a, also a lane that becomes more important just because these are like challenges that consumers are, are, are demanding answers to, are demanding solutions to. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think those spaces are going to open up. And, and really, I, I, you know, I, I think that gets into a world where, um, you know, the dashboard of value grows. It grows from really just everything needing to ladder up to financial value um, to then financial value being considered within the context of, you know, what's the, what's the environmental impact, things like that. Um, just becoming like new normals in, in how everybody's making decisions. Yeah. Well, Nancy, I, I want to thank you so, so much for chatting. I feel like I can go on for another hour and a half, but we might lose listenership at the two hour mark. So we'll, We'll give them what they got while it's good. Uh, where can people learn more about everything you're writing about, uh, find the book and, and everything else you've got going on? Yeah, you could just find me online at whystrickler.com. Um, uh, and the book is called This Could Be Our Future. Um, and then Bentoism, you can find more at bentoism.org. And uh, in there, there's like an online workshop you can go through. So yeah, if, if you're interested, please check it out. Awesome. Yancy. Yeah, Thank you so much. And, and uh, here's a toast to our future us. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Yancey Strickler, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to read Yancey's work or find his book, This Could Be Our Future, check him out at whystrickler.com. If you like what you heard today, 
Leave us a review and a rating. They mean so, so much, especially if they're five stars, not so much if they're less, but we'll take them all. Or find me all over the interwebs at A. Lubarski 2. Happy selling.